New Stories, Bold Legends, Stories from Sydney Lunar Festival is a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. This is season two. In season one, we introduced you to a range of successful contemporary Australians, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. This season, we're going to step back in time and introduce you to some colourful characters from history who have helped shape Australia. From newspaper moguls to department store kings, publicans and tea room merchants, you'll meet people who have made their mark in creating the unique culture we see in our country today. My name's Valerie Koo, the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, printmaker and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, I explore the stories and history of people who melded their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country we call home. In this episode, we meet William Liu, a pathfinder, department store founder and changemaker. In the heart of Sydney's retail district these days, just on the edge of Chinatown, you can find World Square, a collection of buildings, housing, hotels, accommodation, entertainment, shops and restaurants. It's a site with a long history of retail therapy, although for a while during the 1990s, it was nothing more than a hole in the ground. Prior to that, it had been home to the Anthony Horden and Sons department store, which had once been the largest store of its kind in the world. From the mid-1800s until 1969, Horden's was synonymous with shopping. The flagship store, known as the Palace Emporium, was built in 1905. Located as it was right by Chinatown, its design would have a significant effect on the Chinese-Australian merchants who lived and worked in the area. Two major Chinese families, the Ma and Kwok families, had established their own stores on Hay and Campbell Streets. Starting from the late 1800s, they set up Wing Sangs and later Wing Ons. These stores served several purposes. One, obviously, they imported and stocked Chinese wares and exported Aussie foods like biscuits and jam back to China. They were also one of the few ways that Chinese migrants could get visas at the time, with the stores hiring Chinese men as assistants. Inspired by their success in Sydney, these merchant families, with the blessing of Samuel Horden, would export the department store model to China and Hong Kong, bringing a whole new retail experience to Chinese people. In 1914, a young Chinese-Australian man joined Wing Sung's as an indent manager. His name was William Liu, and this was to be the beginning of his long career in trade. As an Australian-born citizen, William wasn't restricted by visa issues like so many other Chinese men. With his fluent Cantonese and English and tireless work ethic, William would become one of the most important businessmen in Sydney's Chinese community, and he was instrumental in forging economic ties between China and Australia. Even more importantly, William was a tireless campaigner for the rights of the Chinese in Australia. For a long time, he seemed to be the only voice chasing the fantastic dream of equal citizenship rights for Chinese Australians. He wrote thousands of letters, pamphlets and articles, arranged lectures and organised events, all this while managing several successful businesses. The injustices that William was fighting against were primarily the result of the White Australia policy, which was enshrined in Australian law in 1901, when William was nine years old. He would feel its effects his whole life, not so much on himself, but on his community. It would take decades of the White Australia policy to be officially ended with the Racial Discrimination Act, but William Liu was there to see it. So let's talk about his beginnings. 
William Joseph Lum Liu was born in Sydney on 29 January 1893, the eldest child of Chinese-born William and English-born Florence. His parents had met the year before at the Chinese Presbyterian Church in Surrey Hills, where Florence was assistant organist. The church can still be found on Crown Street and is reputedly the oldest Chinese church in Australia. Unfortunately, thanks to who she fell in love with, William's mother, Florence, was disowned by her family. It was not a welcoming time for interracial marriage. William was soon joined by a brother, Charles, and sister, Pauline. But with three young children and no family support, his mother fell ill. She was forcibly sent to Parramatta Mental Hospital, where she would spend the next 36 years until her death. Much later in his life, William would reflect on his mother's depression and institutionalisation. He said, It is because of the stupid happenings of the past and in memory of what my mum had suffered, I sometimes imagine is the main reason why I'd like to make a contribution to get matters better for my family and people like us that I have managed to keep up my battling for better Sino-Aussie understanding for so long. With only one parent to care for them, the young William, who would have been around seven, and Charles were briefly sent to an orphanage and then on to the village of their father in China. This was in part to avoid the bubonic plague, which was hitting Sydney at the time, and also in part to get a Chinese education. William spent the next eight years in Taishan County, Guangdong province, before finally returning to Sydney in 1908 when he was 15. Now, these days, we'd call William a third culture kid. Life as an obviously part European kid in China was not easy at first. He didn't speak Chinese, and the other village kids wondered what they should do with these two new kids. It took a year before he had enough language to make friends. William's return to Australia to relearn English and Western culture was equally difficult. He was enrolled in the School of Christ Church St Lawrence on George Street in the heart of Sydney to start his European education. William said, The headmaster did not know what to do with me because I could not speak English. Two teachers flatly refused to have me in their classes. It was a lady named Barbara West who took me into her class. I remember on my first day the girl behind stuck pins into me, but I didn't know enough English words to protest. Barbara West, later Barbara Stevenson, would end up becoming a lifelong friend of William's. She was the daughter of newspaper proprietor John Ferguson, from whom William learned of the power and importance of the press. This would be invaluable for him later when he became an activist. Having been educated in both Australia and China, in both a rural setting and the city, William learnt how to adapt, so he was always able to fit in anywhere. That's the nature of third culture kids. They're able to adapt and translate between their various cultural identities. It's a tough life, but one that forges great resilience. And this was true for William Liu. He said... On account of my upbringing and revisits to China, I have throughout my life felt quite at home in any part of China as I did in any part of the equally wide space of Australia and thoroughly enjoyed my life as a Sino-Aussie in the lands of both my parents and have always been appreciative and grateful to them in having thus made that broader joy for me possible. Speaking both fluent Cantonese and English, it's unsurprising that William's first role was as a secretary at the Chinese consulate in Melbourne. He was primarily occupied with applying for certificates of exemption from the dictation test so that Chinese men, mostly men, 
could apply for visas to live and work in Australia. The dictation test was a central facet of the White Australia policy. Under this policy, officially the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, the new federal government of Australia aimed to limit the number of non-Europeans, especially Chinese, immigrants into the country. One way to do this was to force potential immigrants to take a dictation test in a European language. Any European language. The Act said... Any person who, when asked to do so by an officer, fails to write out at dictation and sign in the presence of the officer a passage of 50 words in length in any European language directed by the officer is a prohibited migrant. (laughs) So even if an immigrant passed the test in English, the immigration officer could demand that they take it again in a different language, for example, Scottish Gaelic or Dutch. It was a test purposely designed to fail for whoever the officer wanted to exclude. Mostly, it was used to restrict Chinese migration, but it was also used politically. For example, a group of Maltese labourers were denied entry after failing a test given in Dutch. A Czech communist was rejected in 1934 because his test was offered in Scottish Gaelic. At the time it was being rolled out, Edmund Barton, Australia's Prime Minister, was very much in favour of the new policy. This is what he said. The doctrine of the equality of man was never intended to apply to the equality of the Englishman and the Chinaman. There is deep-set difference, and we see no prospect and no promise of its ever being effaced. Nothing in this world can put these two races upon an equality. Nothing we can do by cultivation, by refinement, or by anything else will make some races equal to others. (laughs) Okay, so it was exactly this sentiment that William Liu would work so hard and so tirelessly to change. This is what William said. At the consulate, I learned a great deal and was able to get a bit of the overall picture of the Chinese position in Australia, the ups and downs, the happiness and also the sadness of individual as well as groups of our Chinese people here in Australia and with my village experience in China... I also understood and felt with them their own lot here and their anxieties about their folks back at the village, townships, Canton or Hong Kong, where most came from. That's from William Liu. After his stint at the Chinese consul, William moved to Sydney in 1914 and joined Wing Sung & Co, a produce merchant company specialising in the import of bananas from Fiji, as well as fireworks from China and nuts. He would have been 21. Not wasting any opportunities, the company also exported Australian biscuits and jam to China. Wing Sons had one store on the corner of Sussex and Hay Streets and three stores on Campbell Street. The building at 20 and 22 Campbell Street is still there and now houses a convenience store and a Chinese grocery. William would end up having a long commercial relationship with Wing Sons over the next 30 years. He acted in various management roles, gradually gaining more prominence within both the Sydney Chinese community and also the business community of New South Wales. In February of 1916, William married Mabel Ting Khoi, the daughter of another prominent merchant. The wedding was in all respects a very European affair, taking place at St Andrew's Anglican Cathedral next to Sydney Town Hall. William had been in Sydney for only two years, but already he was moving in powerful circles. His marriage linked him with important members of the Chinese business community and was a good strategic choice. 
the wedding was attended by more than 200 people from the Chinese and European communities, including a local alderman. I quote from a newspaper at the time. Usually, a Chinese wedding is carried out in accordance with customs prevailing in the East, but on this occasion there was a total absence of such ceremonies. Still, the hundreds of sightseers in the vicinity of the cathedral were treated to a richness of beauty and dress rarely seen at such functions. The Reverend Mr. Clark officiated at the ceremony. The bride, who was given away by her father, wore a dainty costume of white charmeuse silk with ninon overdress and pearl trimmings. With a court train of white and coral chamoise silk trimmed with true lover's knots, she also wore the customary bridal veil of tulle with orange blossoms and carried a handsome shower bouquet. William also spent 1916 and 1917 setting up a shipping business. With William Goxon and Peter Yi Wing, he co-founded the China-Australia Mail Steamship Line, Originally, the line was launched to break the Japanese monopoly of Pacific shipping lanes during the war years. The company would eventually own three ships, but with the end of the war, the company started losing money, and William was replaced as general manager in 1921. Never one to endure a setback, William spent the interwar years travelling between China and Australia. He recognised something that the Australian government would take years to understand, that establishing trade relations with China made good economic sense. After much lobbying, he finally convinced Canberra to appoint a trade commissioner to Shanghai in 1935. During this time, William was working as an advisor to the four department store chains that had been established by Chinese Australians in China. The first Chinese-Australian store had opened in Shanghai in 1917 and was very much based on Hordens in Sydney. In 1936, William oversaw the opening of an even grander experience, the Sun Company store in Shanghai, with an estimated 48,000 people passing through its doors on opening day. As well as his Australian experience, William had travelled to Japan and learned of new shopping trends there. His Sun Company store had escalators, the first in China, and offered experiences. It wasn't just a place to spend money on stuff. There was a rooftop garden, a restaurant, theatres and art exhibitions. It was a day full of entertainment. Just like his upbringing had taught him, William was taking the best bits and pieces from whatever he found and making something better. This is in stark contrast to what was happening in Australia at the time, where William saw opportunity, Australian officials saw only fear and danger. Under the White Australia policy, more and more restrictions were being placed on Chinese Australians, or coloured aliens as they were sometimes called. Even citizens who had been born in Australia risked losing their citizenship if they returned to China to visit family or on business. Wives and children were especially at risk. The threat of deportation was constant and could come for any obscure reason, and it was entirely justified by the government of the time. In 1941, Prime Minister John Curtin delivered this speech to the House. This nation will remain forever the home of sons of Britishers who came here in peace in order to establish in the South Seas an outpost of the British race. Our laws have proclaimed the standard of a white Australia. We did not intend that it be, and it was never an affront to other races. It was devised for economic and sound humane reasons. It was not challenged for 40 years. We intend to keep it because we know it to be desirable. That was John Curtin. Well... Not 
to William Liu. It wasn't desirable, nor to countless other Chinese Australian people trying to live a peaceful life. William's only goal was for Chinese Australians to be treated the same as migrants from Europe. The White Australia policy created two different systems for Europeans and non-Europeans living in Australia. William was trying to make the point that his father was no different to other settlers. He had come to this country of opportunity and made a life here. Why was he different to European or British settlers who had done the same? During this period, Chinese migrants were restricted to the work they could undertake, usually only working for another Chinese business or as staff in Chinese restaurants. If they wanted to change jobs, they had to apply to the government for permission. Citizens who were second or third generation Australians struggled to apply for residency for their own children if they were born overseas. The policy was effectively trying to eradicate Chinese people from Australia, and in many ways it was successful. The number of Chinese people in Australia dropped considerably during the first half of the 20th century. The case-by-case nature of the white Australia policy meant that many Chinese residents didn't engage in any political discussions. They avoided Chinese newspapers. They didn't want to risk losing their visa or not getting an extension. They basically kept low profiles to make sure they didn't attract the attention of ASIO, Australia's internal security agency. William worked hard to educate the Australian public and officials about Chinese culture and people, hoping to open up more roles and responsibilities and possibilities for Chinese migrants. He wanted to dispel myths about yellow peril. He believed that there were significant economic opportunities for Australia if China and Chinese people were treated fairly. He was, after all, always a man of trade at heart as well as a man of justice. It was during this period that William became known as a tireless and relentless letter writer. He was often the only voice speaking out for the rights of Chinese people, and the lack of political interest from his fellow Chinese Australians was sometimes a source of frustration for him. Many people in the Chinese community thought he was wasting his time, but he still continued. All this letter writing came at a cost. William had no reliable source of income. He set up a furniture business but was too soft-hearted for the enterprise. He refused to repossess the furniture of people who fell behind on payments. From about 1936 to 1939, William was in Inverell, working for his brother-in-law's store while his family stayed behind in Sydney. During this time, he started corresponding with various ministers, party members and officials, such as V.W. Bowden, the Australian Trade Commissioner for China, who was based in Shanghai. Unfortunately, he was consistently rebuffed and frustrated in his efforts to improve Sino-Australian relations. In 1938, he wrote to the head of the Department of the Interior, A.R. Peters. In his typically frank style, he asked for Peters to intervene in the case of a Mr. Henry Lum Lowe, who was at risk of being deported. This is what William wrote. During the quietness of the evenings in Inverell, I am patching tidbits of this and that in the hope of bringing out a little story of the tragic story of the Sino-Aussie drama, and every time I hear a fresh case mentioned, like the above, they only help to make my sad heart sadder. Please be a good man and review the Henry Lum Lau case, and do what you can to enable him to stay here a while, and save him having to go back to China just now with the possibility of getting in the way of some of these Jap bombs, as they are a plenty down Sugarhan Way. 
You'll see that there's no pretension or apology in William's style. He's just one man speaking to another man about the fate of a human being. William believed that education and trade were key to gaining equality for Chinese Australians. Today, we would say he was a clever publicist. He did whatever he could to make sure that Australians could see the best of Chinese people. As part of his efforts, in 1933, he asked journalist John Sleeman to help. John Sleeman wrote White Australia and Australasian Sensation, and the book attempted to paint a different picture of China than what Australian people were getting from the anti-immigration government and media. According to historian Shirley Fitzgerald, it was, in her words, perhaps the most widely read work on the Australia-China relationship in the 30s. In 1932, William co-founded the George E. Morrison Lectures in Ethnology, the endowment was named for the doctor, journalist and political advisor George Morrison, who, the founders felt, had done much to educate Australians about China. Following the death of his co-founders, William kept the lectureship going almost single-handedly. The lectures are still ongoing today and form an important part of the Australian National University and its Chinese Studies curriculum. William also published pamphlets. He set up community groups and business chambers. He continued to write letters. Very slowly, attitudes began to change. Chinese newspapers started publishing articles questioning discrimination. Government officials were starting to consider the benefits of trade with China. Change was still a long way away, but it was coming. William then suffered a brief illness in 1956, and in January of 1957, he received a note from his old teacher and friend, Barbara Stevenson. This is what Barbara said. I hope that you're feeling much better now and that you're improving daily. Just imagine what you'll be like when you get home again, like a giant refreshed. There'll be no holding you. That was Barbara Stevenson. As historical researcher Peter Hack says in his biography of Barbara, this was to be a prophetic sentiment. Over the next almost 20 years, William would be a constant campaigner for immigration reform. His fantastic dream, as one of his critics called it. Other historical events would help these efforts. It wasn't just William alone. And they would finally culminate in the Racial Discrimination Act of 1975. Now, from 1950 to 1968, William visited Canberra to attend the Australian Citizenship Convention, which was held annually at first and then biennially. These were regular, high-profile events funded by the federal government. The aim of the convention was twofold. First, it was to educate Australians about the importance of immigration to the nation. It incorporated events, ceremonies and exhibitions, and the whole thing was widely reported by newspapers and even covered on radio broadcast. The other aim, according to the Immigration Minister A. Corwell, was to promote a nationwide movement towards a deeper appreciation of the privileges and obligations of Australian citizenship. Sounds great, right? But, and there were two big buts, one is that the conventions were specifically designed so that no one could actually criticise the government's immigration policy. This wasn't a debate. The goal was simply assimilation of new settlers and their acceptance by native Australians, meaning people who were already settled in Australia, not the Aboriginal peoples. It was a way to appease the currently predominantly white population of Australia that immigration was being managed and that the new settlers were enough like them to be able to assimilate. 
you can imagine what the other big but was. With delegates carefully selected to avoid debate, people like William Liu, that is, Australians who were considered non-European, including Aboriginal people, could not participate. Despite being an Australian citizen, born and educated in Australia, all William could do was lobby outside the convention. He was refused entry every single year that the convention was held. Again, William wasn't asking for anything more than for Chinese settlers to be treated equally. He wanted the same residency periods and family reunification rights that European immigrants had. Some Chinese families had been in Australia for decades, and yet they had fewer rights than European immigrants fresh off the boat. This third-class treatment was galling. While William continued his campaigning efforts, other changes were happening around Australia. Students were actively protesting against the White Australia policy and other reform groups were finally being formed. Australians were drawing parallels with their own policies and those of South Africa's apartheid, as well as US discrimination against African Americans and Native Americans. During the Vietnam War years, now in his 70s, William continued to push for anti-discriminatory laws. In particular, he insisted that there be Asian and Aboriginal representation at the Australian Citizenship Conventions. This was a particular sticking point for him. He felt that it was unfair that only Europeans were allowed to attend the convention, while Asian, African and Aboriginal people were deliberately excluded. It was akin to saying that they weren't actual citizens. In a letter to the chairman of the Australian Citizenship Commission, William put it plainly. He said, I would stress that these Chinese in Australia today are permanently exiled from their homeland through changing conditions there. They ask to be allowed to plan the future of their lives here with the more promise of permanent conditions as that accorded to other new Australians. William considered himself Australian. His Chinese identity was part of his Australianness. He spoke with an Australian accent and had an Aussie sense of humour. He refused to accept that he or any other Chinese person was in any way unacceptable. By 1968, when he was 75, William had made it into mainstream media. The Sydney Morning Herald, under the heading Dedicated Battler, explained that, and I quote, Mr Liu has a lifelong determination to see Aborigines and nationalised Asians given the same treatment and attention as European Australians. That was from the Sydney Morning Herald. After 40 years of tireless campaigning, William was finally starting to see genuine change. In 1972, Australia normalised relations with China, opening the way for mutual trade and economic opportunities. Around the world, governments were adopting the concept of multiculturalism, and the Australian government did the same. In 1973, the Australian Citizenship Act removed the distinction between Britons and other nationalities and simplified the visa system. Finally, the Racial Discrimination Act came into effect in 1975, officially ending the White Australia policy. 1975 did not mark the end of discrimination against non-European people in Australia, but it was finally the turning point that William had fought all his life for. He was 82 years old. Chinese people are a part of Australia's history, culture and identity. So are settlers from many other Asian countries, Pacific Islands, Africa and elsewhere. Often, they were settlers and pioneers, just like their British or European peers. William fought long and hard for that recognition. 
1981, he was recognised for his outstanding contribution to fostering friendship between the Australian and Chinese communities and trade between the two countries. William died on Anzac Day, 1983, at the age of 90. Thanks for listening to this episode of New Stories, Bold Legends. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find out more about me at ValerieKoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. You can find out more about William Liu and others who celebrate Lunar New Year from this generation and from yesteryear over at newstories.net.au. You'll also find pictures of some of the people we've mentioned so they can come to life visually for you. In the meantime, we hope to see you at the Sydney Lunar Festival. Through this podcast this season, you've been meeting a range of historical characters, the forefathers and mothers of the Sydney Lunar Festival, which is a modern-day celebration of culture, heritage and diversity. It's through the contribution of these people from history who have created the unique culture we celebrate today in Australia. At the festival, you'll find iconic art installations in the form of huge lunar lanterns, each representing a different animal of the zodiac, lining circular key. You'll find performances, talks and events throughout the city of Sydney. More than 1.5 million people attend the festival, which has become one of the biggest events on the city's calendar and the biggest celebration of Lunar New Year outside of mainland China. To find out more, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. See you at the festival.